This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they need justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the crime scene. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you. And it is a red letter day because we have a great guest, a very accomplished novelist, and he has a new book out. I'm talking about Lorenzo Carcaterra, and I'm talking about his new book, Tin Badges. And Lorenzo is very accomplished. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's had other books such as a Safe Place, Sleepers, which was a great movie with Dustin Hoffman and Brad Pitt, Apaches, Gangster, Street Boys, Paradise City, Chasers, Midnight Angels, and The Wolf. He's a former writer-producer for Law & Order, and he's written for National Geographic Traveler, The New York Times Magazine, and Maxim. And this book, Tin Badges, has already been optioned for a TV series by the executive producer behind Rizzoli and Isles. NYPD Blue, Longmire, and The Closer. Lorenzo lives in New York City, and he's joining us today. Welcome to the show, Lorenzo. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. I, I was doing a little research on you, and I think you have a fascinating uh, origin story uh, of Italian lineage and, and so forth. And I think it's so interesting, and I love to at least touch on origin stories. And you talked about your mom and your dad and their background and how that informed what you ended up doing. You you told a, a story about your mom loved to tell you stories, but they weren't, they weren't exactly warm and fuzzy. No, my mother would tell uh, either horror stories or, I mean, her life in, in many ways uh, was shaped by world war two. Uh, she'd lost a, a husband, a baby, a brother, so she had a dark, dark vision of life because of that experience. And, uh, yeah, so her, her stories were, I mean, we, we didn't have, she didn't speak English. And, uh, so we didn't have a lot of books in the house or uh, probably none from what I can remember. So she would tell, um, I mean, one story I do remember her telling was basically she sit you down and say that it was during the war and this, uh, soldier, probably a German soldier, uh, was oh, just wanted to get in from the cold, and he went inside this empty church, and he sat in the front pew and just took his helmet off. And then the floor of the pew, uh, of the, the church, rather, slid open, and with all these flames gushing out, a hand reached up, grabbed them, and tucked them down, and the floor closed, and the soldier forever disappeared. And with that, she would say, well, good night, and you leave. <laughs> uh, so that was her idea of a you know, warm bedtime story. So, uh, but she also was really good about, uh, there was a, in the neighborhood, there was an Italian theater that, uh, Sundays that showed first they either like a puppet show or a small play, but then would show movies and Italian movies. And most of them were again, war movies, neorealism, the De Sica movies, the Rossellini films. And for me, as I grew older, it was, it was so odd and different from 
the American war movies I'd see on American television, watching with my dad, you know, the John Wayne sure. things, where the Italians were always portrayed as cowards or betraying somebody or running from a battle. Whereas here, <clears throat> excuse me, in the De Sica films, who's my favorite director, um, you just saw the courage and the despair and the, and the, the and the, the desperation of a survival in a war. So that always kind of stayed with me, those two things. So yeah, she was very, um, in her own way, she was very uh, informative uh, and helpful to me as a writer and a storyteller. And the one story resonates with me because my late father-in-law was uh, emigrated from Italy and he was a child during the second world war. And he told a story where he literally stole shoes from a soldier. So he would have shoes. It was a very, very difficult time. And, and, and I think people forget that what Italy went through during the second world war. Yeah. And you know, for me, I started going to Italy uh, when I was kind of lucky enough to go when I was from 14 on and we were from a, an island off the coast of Naples called Ischia, which is now this hot tourist island, uh, according to all these travel magazines. But I've been going for, um, the family was all from, uh, all came from there. And then as they married and uh, raised kids, they, they lived in all, all of the cities in Italy, but everyone met there over the summers and lived there and for the entire summer. And, but when I first went, this is 1968 when I was 14 round trip to Italy was $68. (laughs) And, uh, so it was, you know, uh, not a bad way to go. And, uh, and I got to see that side of the, uh, the Italians and, and, and and hear from my grandmother and, um, and other relatives, how as bad as it was during the war, the, the five years after the war, for for Italy, especially for Southern Italy, which bore the brunt of the bombings, was even worse and more difficult. And uh, I mean, to this to the day she died, my grandmother never drank water. She only drank coffee and wine because the water during the war was um, was not you couldn't drink Disease. it. Right. And uh, even when you could, she didn't want it. And uh, so. Yeah, they they took a hit, and uh, and it was very much a living thing for them. I mean, many of them sadly have since passed on, but it was very, the war never sort of left them. You know, when you're when you're a kid and you're eating at home and you don't you don't finish your meal, uh, you know, a lot of people would a lot of mothers always say there's poor people suffering in Africa or in Asia or wherever. My mother would just look at me and say, "Well, you didn't live during the war. That would have been a meal for us." That's right. And so you yep. so you had to finish it and. Uh, and to this day, you don't leave the table. It's a habit. I don't leave the table until uh, everything's cleaned up and done. Yeah, I, I uh, don't. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I got to say, all this resonates with me because of my father-in-law. His whole life I, was built on that, and he always had extra stocks of food, and he would always buy yeah. stuff that was on sale because you didn't know when you were going to not have access to that. And he never forgot that into his eighties. But anyway, it stays with you. I mean, yes, I have so much wine. I collect wine, but I have more wine. And if I live to be 150, I'll still have about 1200 <laughs> bottles of and water. I mean, water is everywhere in my house and my, yeah. in my apartment. And, uh, you know, my, my adult children said, dad, do you really, you know, the, the supermarkets a block away. And, uh, I said, I know it's nice to have it here though. Isn't it? And, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, those are, 
Those are not bad habits. As habits go, those are not bad habits. That's right. So you got to be a a writer, and initially, as I understand it, your thoughts were on uh, being a newspaper writer because newspapers, obviously, we forget it today. Maybe younger people forget it or didn't even know it. But newspapers were king. And you got to work with people like Jimmy Breslin starting out. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, when I said writer, I was not thinking of screen of scripts or books. I mean, that that didn't enter your mind. I mean, my neighborhood, you know, no one even aspired to that. Uh, I meant, you know, because my father, I used to read. My dad couldn't read, so I would read to him, and he'd buy. In those days, it was six or seven newspapers. He'd buy them all except for the New York Times. Uh, he liked the. Uh, no, he had nothing against the Times. It just looked too thick. Uh, he liked tabloids. He liked the Daily News, the Daily Mirror, the, the old New York Post, the, the Dorothy Schiff's Post. And so I would read to him, and a, and a habit I have to this day, I would start from front to back because he liked sports. And uh, so we started with the sports thing. But, you know, after you read three consecutive sports sections, the stories are the same. Sure. The scores haven't changed. And so I would say, Dad, can I go, you know, a little deeper into this? And he said, all right, but just crime. So we went from sports to crime because he liked like crime. And, and then, you know, uh, I started reading the columns and back then the columns were Pete Hamill and, and, and the old post, Jimmy Breslin and, uh, Nora Ephron had a column in there, George Plimpton. Uh, it was just an amazing, you know, for a kid, it was the, it just opened a whole world to me. And it also opened a world when I found out that Pete Hamill was a high school dropout that it took Jimmy uh, six years to get through high school. And uh, so, cause I knew I wasn't going to go to college. Uh, we didn't have that kind of money. So I got lucky. I got a job as a copy boy at the daily news. And uh, the same week I got hired, Jimmy and Pete got hired as columnists for the daily news. And uh, they took a lot of time with me, um, you know, and uh, I really appreciate that Jimmy, and uh, Peter, Peter would go through everything. I was hustling freelance for three dollars. I, I don't care how much they paid. I mean, Jimmy's advice to me was, uh, "You need to get as many because nobody knows what you can do. So you need bylines. So don't look at the money. Just write for whoever let you write. If it's three dollars, if it's five dollars, if it's whatever it is, just do it." Then he said, "When you make it, if you make it." then you don't send out a Christmas card for less than 10 grand. <laughs> so, so I said, okay. So I just hustled and, and then everything I would write, I left on the, uh, Jimmy's desk and Pete's desk and Pete, God love him to this day. He would just go through it line by line with me meticulously what I was doing, right. What I was doing wrong. And Jimmy for a while there, I hadn't heard anything. So I assumed he just wasn't reading it. And then one day I was, I had to drive him somewhere and we were in the elevator and he lit a cigar because he, he knew that ticked people off. And as we got out of the elevator, he stopped me and he said, you're ending your sentences in I-N-G words a lot. And that was a weak, that's a weak word. You want to end it in E-D words. Those are stronger. It's like a jazz riff. The jazz riff always ends on a ba-ba-ba, boom, strong note. So as he walked away, I just said, I stood there and I said, he actually read them. He read them. And cause you know, he was, he gave away that gruff thing, but he was really a kind hearted man. And, um, so between the two of them, and then I just started writing letters to writers I, whose work I liked. I had a teacher in high school said, uh, tell me that if you read a book, he told me if you read a book or something that imp- that impacts on you in some way, emotionally or however, write send the letter to the, in those days you could send letters to the writer through the publisher or however. And 
He said, nine out of 10 times, you're not going to get an answer. So you're out of stamp. But that 10th one, you might. And I, I got a lot of responses from the writers I liked, from Edward Hannibal and Harry Cruz and people like that. And that was sort of my education because I knew it would take a long time. I knew I would go from newspapers and then to magazines. And then I didn't know what the next step is, was, but it turned out to be TV and then books and movies. And uh, But I knew it would be a long progression. And to be frank, if it ended with just newspapers, I would have been happy. If it ended with just magazines, that would be fine too. But, you know, I was lucky and, you know, I caught a few breaks and I worked hard and, you know, the books came, the scripts came and, and one thing flowed after another. So, um, it's been a great ride and for, I don't know, for over 40 years, I guess now. So now, uh, can you talk a little bit about, and I do want to get into the book, Tin Baths, uh, sure. but talk a little bit about writing for television and how that, uh, differs and maybe in some ways is the same. I mean, you still have to have great characters, a great story and so forth. How that differs maybe writing fiction, uh, novel. Well, writing for TV, first of all, like for law and order, uh, there's a certain structure, uh, in, in many ways, I always thought of it as the easiest show to write for and the hardest, um, the easiest in the sense that you knew that I wrote for the mothership, the, the Jerry Orbach, uh, uh, law and order. So you knew you're not going to, you know, Lenny's not going to get shot. There's certain things you cannot do. You knew at the turn that, uh, the cops had to be smart. You know, you just learned all these things. You just knew that, um, if I said to you, I'm going to see, um, when's the last time you saw Jim and and somebody would say, well, I haven't seen him, but you know, Carl saw him about two weeks ago. You know, the next scene is a close up of Carl saying, yeah, I had a drink with Jim at a bar and so on. So in that right. sense, it was easy. What was hard about it was you need that turn. You need the, um, the, the turn to take it from a, what looks like a, we're going down this, the, the left-hand side of the truth. We're going down the right-hand side. So you have to have that, that skill and that ability to, 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 uh, switch gears on the audience. And that's, that's the hard part. And, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And, and, and also what you get to learn is how to keep it tight, how to make your characters speak in a way that, uh, gets their point across quickly without going into these long, you know, convoluted paragraphs, which I don't write anyway, but, um, you know, just get, get to the point, get to the story. So that's, uh, so I learned a lot about, I think I'm a better writer for having worked in for scripts. And I think scripts feed the books and books feed the scripts. And I do think it's a nice balance if you can make it happen. Now, how do you do that though? I mean, obviously law and order, massive success and, and ran for many, you know, many, many years. How do you right. keep that fresh though? Cause that to me would seem to also be a challenge. How do you stay away from a certain sameness? Well, uh, what we had was, as Dick Wolf said, we as long as the New York Post was in business, we'd be in business. Basically, we you you rip off the uh, the headline, but not the copy. Uh, for example, there was um, uh, Phil Spector, the the trial. Uh, there was you know when he got arrested for whatever he did, there was a big story in the New York Post. Uh, Michael Chernichin was probably the best Law and Order writer ever. He now is the head writer on Law and Order Special Victims. Michael wrote an episode that was loosely based on the Phil Spector thing. But if you saw that episode, you would never in any way connect it to Phil Spector uh, because he just changed everything. And, you know, it was just the, the, the gut of the, 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 the foundation was the same. So 
so that was the key for us. We always had enough, there's enough stories in this city to, you know, um, I mean, I remember my first story when I was offered, uh, Michael offered me the job. I was very nervous about it because, um, you know, it's, I, I said I, the back end made me a little bit uh, nervous, the law end. And so Mike, so what I, and there was a two year contract on the table. So I said to Michael, why don't we do this? Why don't I do a freelance episode for you? One episode this way. I could see if I like it, you can see if I'm any good at it. If I, if I deliver a script, that's a dud, you rewrite it and you're done with me. You're not right. stuck with me for two, you know, but if I write, you know, if I like it, then, you know, we can move forward. So he said, listen, I'm going to keep you out of the courtroom. We're going to do a script where there's going to be five murders in 44 minutes, but we got to solve them. So he said, let's meet at the, he was in LA. He said, well, I'm coming to New York. We'll meet at the Carnegie Deli. You bring 10 murders. I'll bring 10 murders. So I said, okay. So I came up with 10 crimes, but some of them from the headlines, some I made up, so same with Michael. And over a couple of breakfast and the help from a waitress actually, because the Carnegie uh, Deli waitresses, you know, they heard two guys talking about killing people for three hours. We either were hitmen or writers for law and order. So, uh, uh, you know, they were pitching in. Oh, I like that one. I don't like that one. Um, you know, there was a story at the time. I remember where a woman ran over her husband, uh, who she thought was, he was coming out of a hotel. She ran him over in her car because he was cheating on her. And then she backed into him and kept running him over two or three times. Um, we didn't do it two or three times. We did it one time. And, uh, so anyway, at the end of it, I went home and I wrote, I wrote it in one night or a night and a half. I handed it in to Michael. He made some changes. Uh, we went back and forth for three or four days and then, you know, uh, I didn't hear anything. And then I was told that it was going to start pre-production. I went to the set and I got to meet the actors. And the minute I met Jerry Orbach and Jesse and Apatha, it was, that was it. That sealed the deal for me. Because uh, I learned as much about writing from those guys, especially Jerry. Uh, than, I mean, you learn more. You can learn as much about writing from actors. I mean, the two actors I've picked up most from in my career writing has been uh, Jerry Orbach and uh, Dennis uh, Dustin Hopper, uh, Dustin Hoffman on. Uh, now those are two good ones. On sleepers. <laughs> good yeah, because they 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 can take a line that on paper is just kind of flat. Or looks flat, and when they say it, it just pops alive, and uh, and that also uh, helps you with the books. When you look at the book, and you uh, when you're writing the book, and you have a, a scene of dialogue, and you say, "Oh, this looks good," but you then re rethink it, you say it out loud, and I mean, obviously not as good as Hoffman or Jerry, but you know, then you say, "Well, maybe it's not as good as I think it is," because you know, with a book, you're alone. With a with a script, there's like 400 people around you sure. to tell you whether it. You know, it's, it, it works it, you know, flush, flush it or keep it. Um, and, uh, so getting a thumbs up from Orbach was always like a big plus. And, you know, TV rules are different than feature rules. TV rules, writers, uh, actors can't change words unless the writer approves, uh, features <laughs> that rule doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so, so it's like, you know, you're in control actually of your own script and, uh, which is, you know, pretty, pretty uh powerful tool to have now how do you get uh and this extends to this book 10 badges when you're talking about law enforcement you're talking about cops how do you get that right. voice right do you have interaction relationships with policemen and, and women and, and say does this sound right does this sound like something you'd say is that uh, been a part of the 
process through the years? Well, I was lucky. I worked on a CBS show from 1990 to 95 called Top Cops. I was in charge of get finding the stories, and it ran for five seasons. Um, and I had a staff, so we did 175. It was broken down each each one hour on CBS was broken down into four 15 minute segments. So that meant four cops. But as you know, for every cop you get on the air, you got to go through like 10 or 12 of them. Sure. Uh, so I got to meet a lot of those guys and, and women. And, it, and uh, some of them became friends like John Douglas, the, the guy, you know, series on Netflix. Yeah, now, we, just did a, we did a, a uh, show with Mark uh, Olshacker, I think it is. It yeah. With him. Yeah. And John's a fascinating, you spend an hour with John, you walk away. So you pick up like the New York cops have a particular way of talking. And also I worked for six years when I did that show, seven years, actually the producer of top cops and other shows that I worked with for those seven years was an ex cop. He was ah. a Sonny Grasso. He was the cop who broke the French connection. Oh. And, uh, and Sonny had an interesting way of talking and I'd meet, you know, I'd hang, you go, you hang out with him and his, and his cop buddies. Uh, I remember like, for example, he would he, he call me over one time. He said, do you see that guy? I said, yeah, what about him? I said, him and me were diabolically opposed. And I said, <laughs> you mean diametrically? He goes, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, so, like the so he just, uh, yeah. So he just, they would, he would use words and, you know, you know, he would just no say, uh, let me bounce that around my, uh, cerebrum. And he got like, what? He goes, <laughs> like let me think Yogi about Bear. it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you pick up dialogue. What I would do on occasion, I used to do it a lot. I haven't done as much lately as I've gotten older, but, uh, there's a restaurant in Long Island city in Queens. The New Yorker did a talk of the town piece on this years ago. I don't know how they found out, but I would gather with the help of some friends, cops, judges, lawyers, um, guys not on the law side and gather them for a dinner. And, once a month or once every couple of months and just listen. And and then it became, you know, they're shy at first and then they start telling stories and then it becomes, can you top this? And then you just sit back and listen and you pick up tons of stories. Like one of the guests was a, a judge uh, who's retired now, uh, judge Edwin Torres, who not only was a judge, uh, he wrote Carlito's way and uh, oh, wow. Q and a uh, terrific, right? But he has a way of talking. He's a street guy he's from uh, uh, Spanish Harlem in New York. And, um, and, you know, he was a kid. people used to make fun of him when he was a kid because his father insisted he go to school and not become like a gangbanger on the street and kept him on the narrow. And he ended up like defending a lot of the guys he grew up with when he, he was the first uh, assistant district attorney, uh, Hispanic, uh, ADA hired in New York. Then he worked at the defense, uh, table where he, you know, he took care of guys like uh, one eyed Spanish Raymond, who was the model for Carlito. But I would go to his courtroom on a Wednesday afternoon, which was calendar day. And that's when they plea bargain. So there's no jury. There's nothing. But they keep bringing people in. And I would just watch him at work and pick up like lingo from him and and watch these guys come in where the, you know, the prosecutors would ask for six years. The defense would ask for four. And he'd bounce it back and forth. But he had a way of talking. that was strictly street. If if you saw Carlitos, you get it. And um you know, so there were people like that that I just kind of hung around with. And uh, uh, some I even cast in Law and Order, Bo Deedle, a, a famous New York oh, yeah. uh, d- detective. I put him in an episode of. Uh, uh, and you know what? Sonny used to always say that they've gone Hollywood in a lot of ways. Sonny used to always say, it used to be, he said, like in the old days, you're chasing a guy down the street. You see a passerby and you say, um, 
uh, call my partner. And he said, now you're chasing a guy down the street. You see a passerby, you say, call my agent. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, Mm. so you pick up stuff and there are guys I can call, you know, who are friends. I've been friends for a long time and just say, listen, I'm thinking of doing this. Now it's fiction. So I can, you know, as John Grisham says, we can do any, anything we're making it up. But, um, I just like to, you know, I'm going to, I'm thinking of doing this and he'll tell me, one of my buddies will tell me what the right way to do it, the legal way to do it. But then it's up to me if it fits the story or not to, to juggle it around. Once I know what the right way is, then I could say, all right, but you know, it might help me if I can just bend it a little and go this way. Um, but I try to stick to as close to it as possible, you know, get the lingo right. And, uh, you know, the 61s, which are the arrest forms. Uh, so that part you do want to get right. RMPs, which are the, the, the police cars, uh, that gives it a feel of being authentic. Um, you know, until I went on law and order, I didn't know what a full boat meant. A full boat means at a scene at a crime scene, it's everybody. This, the CSI guys, the, uh, the CSU guys, the, the photographer, the medical people, the cops, everybody's there in a roped up area. So that's the full boat. But you know, the first time you hear that, which I, it was the first time I heard it was on law and order. I didn't know what they were talking about. And, um, so you, you pick up things over the years and you make friends. And, you know, some of these guys I've known for a long time, uh, you know, for 30, 35 years. So you can pick their brains and, and they're really good about helping you out because they're movie and TV buffs. So they want to know more for me about what's going on in the TV and movie and book business. And, and I want to know what's going on in law enforcement and all that. So that kind of balances out. Well, speaking of the book business, you have a new book out, 10 badges. What is the price? Well, you know, what I wanted to do is, um, it's kind of a hybrid. It's a crime drama and it's a family drama. So that was one thing. Uh, Two, I took a long time because it's five years between books for me. And I, and I wrote a few scripts, but I mean, there was a lot of things that happened. One, you know, life and uh, death often uh, sometimes get in the way of our plans. Uh, my wife passed away in 2013. Oh, I'm sorry. And so when The Wolf came out in 2014, I, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do, but that year was kind of a blur. And 2015, 2016, I focused on scripts. So I wasn't really ready to go back to doing a book. Um, so when I decided to do a, uh, this will be a series. I said, you know what, if, if the lead guy is an ex cop, you know, shut off the job, which means you get that tax free three quarter disability. You know, you read them. I read them. There's a million books where the ex cop off the job, he's, he drinks too much. He's got right. three ex wives. He's got kids. He never sees. He's a mess. You know, he wakes up with his head on a bar and he doesn't know where he is. I didn't want that. My guy, uh, Tank Rizzo, uh, gets shot off the job. He's got that pension. He also, his parents left him a four-story brownstone in the village. So he, he lives in the t- bottom two. He rents out the two, top two. So he has rental income. And he's got a full life. Yes, he misses the job. You know, they all miss the job. But he goes to the theater. He works out. He loves sports. Uh, he loves movies. He reads, he travels. So he, he's got a full life. Now what helps him is that the chief, uh, occasionally throws him a case. The chief of detectives throws him and his partner a case. And he has this kind of eclectic group of people that he's formed a unit with that help him out on the cases. He dates a woman in a restaurant that he, who co-owns a restaurant near his 
brownstone that he eats in regularly. Her father is the other co-owner, and he's an ex-mob guy, a bookie guy. And so that's all part of like the, the crew that I could pick from and add to in, in subsequent books. Then in the middle of this, uh, he has a secret, like we all do. His is a family secret. And he and his brother, he has a brother that they've just not spoken to each other for a lot of years. It's almost, they, they don't even live on two different planets, uh, two different worlds, they're on two different planets. And so no one asks him about him. That's the one area that he just doesn't want to cross. Because he and that brother share a secret that Tank doesn't want anyone to know. And we all have that. You have a secret that you probably don't want anyone to know in your life. I have one. We all have that. Sure. So, but... You know, again, reality, uh, life gets in the way. The brother and the brother's wife die in what appear to be a car accident. They leave behind a 15-year-old kid, his nephew. Now, Tank is, if he's met this kid at all, it's in passing, maybe once. So it's, it's an unknown to him. The kid, on the other hand, knows all about his uncle from reading about him. While he's never met him, you know, as the Tank was in a uh, headline cop, he made a lot of major busts. So he knew a lot about his uncle. Also, the kid was a crime buff. Uh, he watches all the shows, NCIS, CSI, all Law and Order, and you know the even the nonfiction ones, forensics, forensic files, and and and, the, and shows like that. He also reads all the books, and he belongs to this uh, teenage chat group that's modeled on the Vidoc Society, the, those professionals who get together and uh, solve cold case crimes. So he's a t- so he's a t- complete crime buff. So Tank agrees to take him in as opposed to putting him through social services and, you know, foster homes and so forth. Um, but it's an unusual situation. Tank is uh, equipped to be a lot of things, but not to be a father. And, you know, so they butt heads a little bit in the beginning. But the kid needs to ingratiate himself with the crew. And it's, you know, his life's been flipped upside down. He's going from private school to public school, from a suburban life to uh, downtown Manhattan. So it's a whole different new friends, you know, close friends. Now he's hanging around with, you know, ex cops and former mob guys. Um, so it's a big adjustment for him, but also his plan is to ingratiate himself with his uncle and his friends because he wants to, he needs to, but also behind his, in his thinking is that he really firmly believes the kid, Chris, that his parents did not die in an accident, that the, that somehow his father's company went out to um, to mess, fiddled with the car and led to his parents' death for whatever reasons he's going to try to uncover. But he needs his uncle to do that. So he's got to earn his uncle's trust first and by helping him with the particular case they're working on in Tin Badges. And they have to form some sort of relationship before he can take it to that next step. Tank is reluctant to even, he, he kind of suspects what his nephew's up to, but he's very reluctant to get involved because of that dark secret that we all don't want. He's convinced that if that secret were to come out in the open, that suddenly his life would be altered, that the people around him who have been around him for a long time, uh, who love him and trust him. And that's another thing he has in common with a lot of the cops I know. Uh, and, and a lot of the people, frankly, I've grown up with, if they don't know you, they don't trust you. For, for them, right. they need to know you a long time for them to trust I mean, Sonny used to say, what I don't know, I don't trust. So that's why people who worked with him worked with him from one show to the next to the next to the next. 
all the time. You know, he always had the same crew with him. Uh, it didn't matter if we were not the most talented. It were, it, what mattered was he knew us and he trusted us. And uh, so the same is true with Tank. So that basically is a story. So it is a hybrid. It's family and it's crime, which, you know, hopefully I pulled it off. And, and uh, you know, we'll, you know, the ultimate judge in all this is you, the readers and, and, and the book buyers. So they decide if I was successful or not successful. Well, I'm not done with the book yet, but I am certainly enjoying it. It's very good. And boy, it sounds like a TV series for sure. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, we'll see how that goes. It looks good. I mean, uh, it looks like uh, CBS really likes it. Warner Brothers is really high on it. And uh, the producers are terrific guys. And, um, you know, it's like you hand over your child to some some writer who you don't may or may not know. And he's going to you know, take your kid and maybe, you know, change the color of his hair, make him taller, make him shorter, make him fatter. And, uh, but whatever works, you know, if they get it on the screen, that'd be great. Uh, it's sort of out of my hands now. And, uh, but it's, you know, I think it's in good, I've left, you know, I was very careful who I sold it to and I, and I left the book, I think in good hands. Well, uh, it's a great book. I'm enjoying it. And if you love crime novels, you need to check it out. It is Tin Badges, a novel by our guest today, Mr. Lorenzo Carcaterra. Uh, Lorenzo, they can find the book wherever fine books are sold, online and off, correct? They can find it anywhere, uh, from VNN to Amazon to any independent, uh, to anybody. And, you know... Uh, to a kid in a garage selling it. I don't know how, uh, but yeah, wherever you need a book, yeah, if you can find, if they sell books, this will be there. There you go. Lorenzo Carcaterra, thank you for joining us on Crime Scene today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. I really enjoyed that interview and I love getting to talk to authors about their origin story and what's behind their writing, whether it's crime or true crime, whether it's novelist or it's true life. And, you know, I've been thinking about this show for some time because it's never gotten the uptake quite that I've wanted, but I think the episodes are really, really strong. I think it's kind of aimed maybe at the wrong audience. I think there's plenty of people who would like it if they only knew about it. Part of that is the title of the show. So in future weeks, maybe look for a new title of this show. Similar content, still going to talk mainly about true crime, talk to authors mainly about true crime. But uh, maybe what I think a better description of what the show has kind of evolved to be. So anyhow, stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode. And as always, be careful out there. 